You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Well, Ben, it's better late than never this week is how I like to look at it. Is that what you're telling yourself? Yep, just better late than never. Okay. I mean, you do realize that, that you angered a good deal of our listenership. They're just going to be angry no matter what happens, I think is one of the things we've learned throughout 145 episodes of doing this show. I'm just glad that this time I feel like everybody's catching on to to who the problem is. This time? Yeah. The, you are mostly the, almost always the problem. That's an exaggeration. No. I, maybe I would say 50% of the time. Like when That I, seems a little more fair. For instance, like two weeks ago when I had a baby and then rolled in here and did the damn thing on time, right on schedule. Which I did when I had my baby, which has been conveniently forgotten in all of this I don't by even, everyone. It's been so long, I don't even remember if you have a baby or we not. We don't even know that I'm the father. Let's be honest. Well, I've seen that kid's hair. You're the father. That's true. <laughs> uh, ben, we got gifts in the mail this week from a friend of the podcast, Julie Kedzie, who I believe it's her birthday. It is. It is her birthday today. So that's why that maybe that's why we're doing this, why we're recording this special episode, this very special episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. Sure. Go ahead and do that, you revisionist history bastard, you. Well, if I mean, if you're going to do it, I might as well join in. Fine. Right? Happy birthday to Julie Kedzie, and thank you to Julie Kedzie for sending us these charming, the MMA media is a whore t-shirts. It's been killing me ever since you sent me these t-shirts. I can't even decide if it's grammatically correct or not. Is the MMA media an it or is it a they, Chad? Uh, I mean, technically, sentence structure-wise, I think it should be an it, right? Okay. Well, then it works. But in, in colloquial English, I mean, it's basically accepted now for people to, to call an it a they. I'm still waiting to see what the reaction is going to be when I wear this thing around town. Because on one hand, it says the word whore in big red letters, which yep. I feel like everybody understands. Yeah, kind of like graffiti letters. Right. And the, on the other hand, though, it says above that the MMA media is. And I feel like there's not enough people who are going to know what the MMA media is. So I feel like I could really baffle the hell out of some people with this shirt. I bet you're going to get a lot of questions asked, especially since MMA could reasonably mean something in Montana. That's true. You're saying it's a conversation starter. Yes. I think you're going to make a lot of new friends. Okay. Which is one of the things that I know you like to do. Yeah. So that's going to be good Social for butterfly that I am. See, I, I know what the MMA media is, and I'm still not sure I understand the, the, the shirt, the, the entire point of the shirt. I think it's about your personal sexual mores, which are, let's, let's be honest, questionable. Flexible. Let's yes. just say flexible. If, if the MMA media is out there whoring itself, I would like to get a piece of this of the returns. Here. Yeah. Can the, can the CME podcast also get in on the whoring? Because I'm telling you, we'll lay down for anybody with some money. That's right. For almost any price. Ben, we have music this week. Instead of introducing it the normal way, I'm just going to read the entirety of the email that this band sent us. It reads, Hey, JT and the bear. My name's Freud and my band is called. Oh shit. We're from Canada. So that should explain most questions that you have. Well, that's it. That's it. And I'm into it. I think that they nailed it, frankly. 
So if you like what you hear from Oh Shit, you can find them at uh, Reverb reverbnation.com slash oh shit cometh and at twitter at oh shit cometh now see i feel like they would have some interesting t-shirts for sale i bet i bet they have some merch yeah could probably check that out three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast in round number one welcome to the ralphie angels era in the lightweight division an era so exciting the ufc announced team was already talking about how and when it might end before he'd even won the fight against anthony pettis and in round number two look before this goes any further Let's all take a solemn vow that we're all going to stop trying to make Joanna Champion happen. Not going to happen. Really? Because I prefer it to us all fucking around with her last name. Like, no, we can we, do that. We got that part figured out. We'll talk about it in round two. And in round number three, oh, yeah, Damian Maya. Huh. Huh. Okay. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Martin Jarborg. He writes, Real quick, what's up with President Dana critiquing Hendricks's win over Matt Brown? I know it's hardly the first time, but here's a guy one close loss removed from the belt, dominating a dangerous opponent, utilizing, impressively I might add, the very skills that got him into this game in the first place. He should be ashamed for this? Or he should be shamed for this? The fuck? Yeah. I'm with you. I am too. I, I thought this was a good fight and uh, maybe the most complete and impressive performance we'd, we've seen yet from Johnny Hendricks. Like, I under, I mean, obviously we know that dating back to the start of, of the at least the Zufa era in mixed martial arts, we've had this sort of like Coke and Pepsi uh, discussion about, you know, wrestling, striking, you know, the quote unquote lay and pray uh what did Anthony Pettis' coach call the clinching against? Oh, stall and wall and stall. Wall and stall. Wall and stall. Uh, but, I, you know, like, I don't even think you could make the accusation that that is what happened in this fight. Because I don't think so either. And I was Johnny so- Hendricks really dominated it, like, um, mostly on the feet and on the ground. Like, yeah. Especially in round number two, he really put those hands on, on Matt Brown. And, uh, you know, Matt Brown had his moments, especially in the first round on the, on the feet. But, like, this, to me, was just a complete MMA performance, like exactly what you would want to see in a sport that allows for both grappling and striking. Yeah, I thought he did an excellent job of putting it all together there and doing what we probably criticized him for uh, in at least one of those Robbie Lawler performances where uh, you know maybe he'd been a guy that we accused of getting too in love with his own punching power, uh, forgetting about his his high-quality wrestling and his good ground game and just trying to knock people out with one big shot over and over again. And here was one, like you said, you know, he, he did some work with the left hand. Uh, he, he did well in the stand-up game, but he also kept Matt Brown guessing with those takedowns. And then once he got him there, uh, just kind of suffocating him on the mat. I mean, to me, it looked like a great all-around performance from Jordan Hendricks and the kind of thing that makes you realize, like, oh, wait, if you can do this, He's a problem for a lot of people. Like, there's just no great area to fight Johnny Hendricks in. And if he gets going in that way, he's going to make you fight entirely on the defensive. And and that beats a lot of people. And so that's why I was also surprised. And it wasn't just Dana White who criticized him for it. Uh, but I saw a lot, a lot of the fans on Twitter talking about, like, oh, he's just wrestling. He's just holding him down. He only beat, He's only proved that he's a better wrestler. Well, no, I mean, he proved that he's a better fighter. And I think that that's the kind of thing where maybe it's just like – raised expectations from how many people he's knocked out in the past. But to me, I saw that performance and thought, 
that looks like Johnny Hendricks kind of figuring out the balance of uh, you know the, the, his full arsenal and why it's scary. That it's not just that he's going to go out there and try to take your head off with the left hand. It's that he can do that, and then he can also uh, trick you and, and get you with a takedown. And so then, you know, what are you going to do against that guy? I think like, that was one of the best Johnny Hendrickses we've seen lately. Yeah, maybe the best. And, you know, if you're that guy that goes out there and, and just throws hands with, with Robbie Lawler for, for five rounds twice like that, you know, that's going to win you some fans, and maybe people do, in fact, have expectations from that. But, like, the wrestling, mixing the wrestling in there like he did in this Matt Brown fight, that's what makes you a good MMA fighter. Like, and arguably how he won the first fight against Robbie Lawler, right? Right, and to the extent that that you're just holding a, a person down, I feel like people who say that have never, like, actually tried to hold someone down. Or, like, never tried to, quote-unquote, hold someone else down when the other person knows what they're doing. Right. Because that shit ain't easy. No, and it's not. You're and not just, quote-unquote, laying there. No. And, and also... uh Give credit to Matt Brown because he did a really good job of uh, kind of stymieing the offense when he yeah. was on his back. Especially in the first round. Like, to the extent that this fight kind of, you know, if you want to say that it stalled out on the ground, I don't even necessarily know that it did because uh, Matt Brown kept going for those weird inverted triangles and stuff like that. But, like, uh, to, if it did, if you do want to say that it stalled out, it stalled out because Matt Brown is super good at being defensive off his back, especially in that first round. Maybe the thing for Johnny Hendricks to do is to point out that if you, even if you do think he was just holding Matt Brown down, he held down a grown man. Remember when uh, Danny Castillo, a grown ass man, that he held down a grown ass man. Yeah. Then it becomes more impressive. That helps. Like, oh, you mean he wasn't a juvenile? Okay. (laughs) Uh, That, you know, and uh, I think we might talk about this a little bit more in the Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, Anthony Pettis round, but, um, you know, being able to choose or at least being able to dictate where a fight is contested is like maybe the most important thing to be able to do in an MMA fight. Right. Also something that we might end up talking about in round two with the Joanna Champion round. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. We saw a lot of good uh, examples of that, I guess. Next question this week comes from Tyler this week. He writes, Rafael Dos Anjos on PEDs. No sooner did the decision get read on Saturday night that my Twitter blew up with journalists and fans posting pictures of RDA's quote unquote body progression and making accusations in this current state of MMA where dreams have been shattered by Anderson Silva. Is this type of speculation a product of the environment or just sour grapes from pretty Tony fans? RDA looks good getting off the bus, but so do lots of other guys who never tested positive for PEDs. I know you'll cover the fight itself in one of the rounds, but I thought this might warrant a separate discussion. Uh, there is a lot of speculation there is on the internet yes and, and that is like kind of a shame because it makes it feel like we can't even enjoy a damn sporting event without you know this sort of like cloud of speculation and and suspicion uh casting a shadow over it and and in a way like tyler's right that is just kind of the hand we've been dealt in this sport where it feels like you know, some of our biggest heroes or some of the guys we like to watch the most later have kind of, uh, you know, tainted it a little bit by by testing positive yeah, for steroids. The, the hand that, that that several fighters dealt us. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Let's not use the passive That's a voice good description here. of it. Uh, and, you know, in fairness, Rafael Dos Anjos has had a what is referred to here as a body progression. He has had a startling body progression he throughout has. his UFC career. He looks different in the face. And in the physique, which, 
I mean, in this day and age, that's always going to make people wonder, especially when the thing about you is that you've always been kind of an up and down guy until the last three years. Like they were even selling this really hard on the UFC 185 broadcast that like he had quote unquote been a different person during the last three years. So like anytime you've spent a, a long period of your career being kind of mediocre, a la say Chael Sonnen, for instance, mm-hmm. and then suddenly near the end of it, or, or, you know, at some point you seem to put it all together and go on this amazing run to the title or almost to the title in Sonnen's case, like that's going to make people, People raise eyebrows in 2015. I think that's just being real realistic. Although I don't think it's fair to Dos Anjos either. Well, I mean, you know, it's like a guy who be, who is a singles and doubles hitter his whole career, uh, and suddenly in his mid to late 30s becomes a power hitter. People are going to wonder about that kind of transformation. I think though, with with Dos Anjos, I think it's not just any one thing. I think this is a perfect storm kind of uh, situation. And I'll tell you all the elements that I consider, and they're not – some of them are more fair than others, um, but and some are downright unfair. But I think they all work together to create this – at least this question about the PEDs. Uh, one of the most unfair ones, he's Brazilian. And I think that lately especially, uh, looking at Anderson Silva, I think that uh, – and we had a question on the podcast a few weeks ago. Is there a different cultural attitude among yes, Brazilian yeah. fighters toward PEDs? You put – Almost the entire nation of Brazil on blast that week, and now no, I what, said two weeks later you're going to say it's unfair. Well, I mean, it's because obviously you can't say every single Brazilian fighter is on steroids. I'm pretty sure that's what you said. No, no, no you I would said, have to review the tape. We but can I'm pretty review sure. the tape. What I said first of all, I didn't say the nation of Brazil. I said that definitely in the the jiu-jitsu community among the Brazilians. Uh, in that community, you see a different attitude toward performance enhancing drugs. Uh, they they don't see it as you know, as much of a taboo, forbidden thing. Um, and, and I think that when you see some, some Brazilian, high-profile Brazilian fighters uh, like Anderson Silva popping positive, then I think it's easier for people to say, like, okay, well, the Brazilians are all on the juice. You know, again, that's not fair, but I think it, it is something that, that people are more likely to lob that accusation at Brazilians. Again, though, there are – you do hear – as an MMA media member, whores that we are, you do hear some rumors coming out about from that camp, from uh, fr- from teammates uh, that that say things along the lines of that you know PEDs are a little bit of an open secret. Uh, so that that rumor is definitely out there about him. Then you you combine the thing of like, hey, he's been there for what almost seven years, and then suddenly in the last couple of years. Uh, goes on a tear and looks awesome. Even on the broadcast, Joe Rogan keeps talking over and over again about how strong and how fit this guy looks. And it's kind of like, well, why now? You know, people are going to wonder about that kind of thing. Uh, and also, I think one of the things that makes people more suspicious or at least more cynical about it is you think about where the fight was, right? It's in Texas. They're not, Texas is nowhere near as proactive as like Nevada or California about the drug testing, about, you know, any meaningful drug testing, like out of competition, surprise drug testing. Uh, They're doing the same old fight night stuff everybody else has been doing for years and that people have been getting away with for years. Uh, The UFC's own drug testing program, still kind of a whisper uh, and just nebulous at this point, hasn't taken shape. And so I think that people... They are. They combine all those suspicions, and then they look and say, "Well, and there's no no good chance that they'll catch him." So screw it, you know. Like he could totally be tricking everybody here, pulling the wool over everybody's eyes, getting away with it, winning a championship that way, and we'll never find out. At least we won't find out until you know some he fights somewhere where there's a testing people are more likely to believe in. So I think that you combine all those things together, uh, just with the current level of cynicism among MMA fans, which is the direct. 
uh, responsibility of all these fighters who have popped positive and just kind of uh, led us all to believe that nobody's clean. And and I think that's where you get this feeling like, well, shit, how much can we really enjoy this? And we were talking not too long ago where we were trying to make a list, right, of who are we absolutely sure is clean, at least clean of performance-enhancing drugs, you know, not, not listing fun drugs. Uh, and we couldn't get very far on that list. Would you put Rafael Dos Anjos on your list as absolutely sure he's clean? No. I wouldn't put Anthony Pettis on that list either. Really? I wouldn't put anybody on that list. Oh, come on. Like, hardly anyone. Who would you put on the list? Uh, Absolutely sure that they're not doing anything. Yeah. Um, Tim Kennedy. Tim Kennedy. Michael Bisping. Bisping. Uh, Brian Stan, I would, but he's obviously no longer a... uh, an uh, active fighter. Chris Weidman. I'd put Chris Weidman on that list. See, like even Weidman, I feel like we've been burned so many times that it's hard for me to even believe. You can't love again? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard for me to just, you know, give my heart away. But it does suck. It does suck to have to even think about this stuff because you want to be able to see like a really good performance from Rafael Dos Anjos, right? To see him really go out there, take it to Pettis, do what, what few people thought he was going to do. You want to be able to just enjoy that. And we can't. Like, we just can't do that unless we want to, like, choose to be naive. Like, we have to at least consider the possibility. And that sucks, man. That sucks really bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, now he's the UFC lightweight champion. So he's not going to have all of his fights in Texas. He's probably going to have to come to Nevada. And if he is juicing, it's not like he's going to stop now that he has the belt. Yeah. And unless this was just his wild ride to the championship and now his business is done or whatever. But like, no, he's probably going to get tested a lot more now. Um, and I think it is kind of unfair to talk about it so much when there's, there's no actual evidence. We're just kind of like blindly like body shaming him in a way, in a weird that's, way, that's reverse true. body shaming. But then I guess I, when you, when it's, especially like when, like we get questions like this, you see the questions on Twitter, like, do you think the better thing to do is to pretend like, like, cause it's what I get what you're saying where you say like, Hey, by even talking about it, we are lending to this like taint that might be unfairly stuck to him that he doesn't really deserve because you know, he hasn't failed a drug test or anything. Um, but then if the alternative is to just pretend like we don't hear any of that, I don't know if that's a great alternative. No, we have to talk about it, especially since we have an hour and 10 minutes to fill, <laughs> you know, every week. Uh, but at the same time, like I do, I think we have to get to at least give a nod to the fact that it's all speculation at this point, although it is a, a, a topic that, you know, when it comes up so prevalently, you have to at least discuss it for a second. Next question this week comes from Curtis Bouchard. It starts with a quote. The quote says, he's scared. He not like scared takedowns and he needs go kickboxing. But in MMA, this is very dangerous for him because you have to fight with me. I am takedown machine. 21 times I have record. And when I have fight with him, I want new record. Maybe 25, 24. And after fight, we talk about this. Don't forget. Obviously, the this quote is attributed to just Nermi. And then the question is, is it just me or does Habib's broken English make his trash talk even more entertaining? I think he'll be one of the UFC's top draws in a year or two. Thoughts? Uh, Habib Nurmagomedov is awesome. He is. In almost all ways. Did you see the Instagram video of he and his father uh, wrestling in like a sand pit and his father gets a pretty sweet leg trip takedown on him? No, I didn't see that. I saw the one where he signed his his like contract to fight uh, Don, Donald Cerrone, and he and his who I assumed was his father, or his uncle, or whatever, were sitting at a table in what 
is looks exactly like you would imagine Habib Nurmagomedov's house to look like. I do agree that, like, I mean, I'm not saying that if he spoke flawless English, his trash talk would not be as good because he seems like he has a pretty good handle on how trash talk works. Um, but it does seem like it adds a little flavor to it, does it not? It does. I want to read my favorite Nurmi trash talk of the last week when he was on uh, the MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani, talking, like, still talking about Anthony Pettis, kicking sand in the face of Anthony Pettis after uh, Rafael Dos Anjos took his, took his title. Here's my favorite one. I told you he's no champion. I told you before, Rafael Dos Anjos can beat him. I can beat him. And a lot of fighters can beat him. But all the time, Dana White say he's pound for pound king. He's one of the greatest. His coaches say he's Mayweather in MMA. I think it's joke. You understand? Now everybody understands who is who. Rafael Dos Anjos, I, and Cowboy, and Michael Johnson. These guys are top four in lightweight division. Now Anthony Pettis go to the prelims. Oh wow! Yeah, to the no, prelims. No, uh, not not very much uh, sympathy for Anthony Pettis losing the title from Habib Nurmagomedov. Almost as though he sees a potential fight down the road with the former champion. Especially if uh, you know if, if Nurmagomedov emerges from the Donald Cerrone number one contender fight as the number one contender, and then fights Rafael dos Anjos, who he just beat April two thousand fourteen. Who I would think he would be the favorite there, although. Dos Anjos certainly looks a lot better now than than even then. Uh, but like, yeah, that could still be a big money fight for Nermi and Pretty Tony. So, you know, why let the, the feud die just because one guy's going through some tough times? Yeah. And, you know, if if the Reebok people don't figure out how to sell a T-shirt that has a picture of Nermi with that crazy furry hat he wears with the words, I think it's joke uh, somewhere on there, then then fuck you, Reebok. You don't deserve our money, you know? Do you think I was thinking about this after Anthony Pettis lost? Do you think that Reebok is starting to wonder exactly what it's gotten itself into here? Because like it sponsored Anthony Pettis, he lost the title. It sponsored Johnny Hendricks. I don't know if it did that when he was the champion or if he'd already lost to uh, Robbie Lawler, but obviously then he loses his title fight. Uh, and then you know stuff like Anderson Silva tests positive for steroids. John Jones, who's one of their guys, has to go into rehab after his. Uh, after his last fight, it, was just, it crossed my mind this week that Reebok is getting a crash course in, uh, in being in this business. Well, you know, if they didn't expect this, then it's only because they didn't do their homework beforehand. Because it's not like we just started being a bunch of nut jobs in the MMA world. We, we've been at this for a little while, Chad. They, yeah, they, yeah, I know. I'm just saying when outsiders come into it, uh, you know, it does sometimes cross my mind that maybe they don't know exactly what they're getting into. Well, if they don't know... Now they know, Now Chad. they know. Next question this week comes from Tony from Edmonton. He writes, After a fairly killer pay-per-view, can we take a moment to highlight how badass Benil Dariush looked in his fight against Darren Crookshank? He went kick for kick with the noted kickboxer and then laid on a sick submission at the end. As I told my wife at the time... This is why she, quote-unquote, wastes her time watching the prelims to see guys like this so you can be excited for them later on. What's next for Benny Dariush? Uh, this was another impressive performance for a guy who uh, is a training partner of Rafael Dos Anjos. And uh, remember last week when I was talking about how the uh, the uh, uh, Embedded series didn't give us much to work with, or the, the countdown, I guess it was, countdown to UFC 185, didn't give us much to go on in terms of Dos Anjos and, and 
sinking our teeth into him a little bit more. Well, it was Benil Dariush who was the guy who gave the quotes about how it's not very fun to spar with Hoffa right now uh, because he's really on point. And then uh, Dariush has a good performance against Darren Crookshank where when you, as the guy who comes into the fight, with the impressive wrestling pedigree are forcing the other guy who is the striker to try to take you down. You know, it's working. Yeah. I also, it made you wonder kind of what was going on with Darren Crookshank, right? Like he misses weight. He looks a little bit, a little bit soft in there. And then, uh, well, then he gets kicked in the body a yeah. hundred times, which is probably not good. Then Benny Darius, if your level of fitness is not up to par, goes to thwacking his shin all upside the man's ribs. Uh, and then you could see it like where he, when he was kind of rushing those takedowns and just making some, some poor choices there, it seemed like maybe, I don't know if his, uh, if he wasn't into it in the, the right headspace that he needed to be in before the fight, or if it just, when he started getting kicked like that, uh, made him make some poor decisions. Uh, but yeah, he fed right into, to everything that Benny Dariush would hope that he would do well. And gotta say, it's a pretty big win for Dariush, you know, like he's, He's one of those guys where you can see he obviously has some talent. Uh, even that fight that he had where he got knocked out by uh, Ramsey Najem, I think it was. Uh, he, he was looking pretty good in that one up until that. You know, So I think that he needed a, a fight like this against somebody people respect, and we kind of feel like we know what to make of that victory. Uh, and maybe this is the kind of thing that gets you off the prelims and uh, get people to start paying attention to you. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you got to expect he's going to see a big jump up in the kind of competition they're going to give him after this, right? Yeah, he's won three in a row. He's four and one in the UFC, and that one loss, as you said, is the was the knockout first round knockout against Ramsey to Jim. Uh, the problem is you're fighting in that lightweight division, or you would be if Darren Crookshank didn't come in at uh, junior welterweight. Uh, so you know you you put together three wins and it doesn't necessarily look that impressive uh, when dudes like Nurmagomedov are twenty two and zero and and you know Cowboys won however many fights in a row and yeah. stuff like that. So you're a heavyweight, you begin a title shot. That's right. right. Now. That's right. If if uh, Benil Dariush was a thirty five year old heavyweight, uh, he'd be he'd be on deck. He'd be waiting around hoping somebody got injured so he could step in and fight. Uh, Fabricio Verdum on short notice. But yeah, like it's, it's hard to get your name out there in the lightweight division, but, uh, this is the kind of stuff that, that's gonna, that's gonna do it for him. He's got, he's, all of his fights have been, uh, submission wins, except for one decision over Carlos Diego Ferreira. Uh, so yeah, he seems like a guy at only 25 years old, uh, with pretty damn good all around skills who, uh, could potentially make a name for himself. Uh, and there's no shortage of tough dudes to fight in that division either. So um, <clears throat> you think he would get his chance. I don't know how far he jumps up, you know, like uh, I don't know if you would quite get into like Michael Johnson type range. Uh, I heard he is like top that. four guys. Yeah, he's, lightweight division. he's one of top four guys, uh, you know, but you got, you know, there's lots of guys hanging around Eddie Alvarez down near the bottom of the, the that top 10. Uh, but there's just so many athletes in that division now that, you know, Benil Dariush could end up fighting another dude who is next to indistinguishable from the rest. Yeah, man, bummer. It's almost like uh, it'd just be better to be born a really huge dude in you MMA. Think? Yeah. Or in almost all things. Yeah. Just be enormous. Either that or be tiny, like a flyweight, to where they just don't have anybody else. And if you can win a couple fights, then they have to put you in for a title because they have no goddamn choice. Yeah, plus you could sit anywhere on the airplane. <laughs> there you flyweight. go. You don't have to get an aisle seat. You don't even have to be up up front in what a business class is that what they call it? This is right behind first class. Yeah, although if you do go to a concert, then you can't see anything. 
I spent some time on the road this past week, Ben, uh, and I realized that one of the things that could be my calling, given my noted problem pronouncing people's names, I could be one of those people at the airport that calls people up to the ticket desk. Oh, because they are be not nailing that. it. Yeah, with anybody. They just kind of trail off in the middle. They're like Daniel, Jap is Jude. Please approach the ticket counter, Daniel J. I don't know. I seem to recall when I was watching one of those uh, UFC embeddeds, I heard Nicholas Diaz uh, very clearly. But Diaz, not Diaz. Okay, right? there you and go. I think we all know. So you're saying a pro like Bruce Buffer, if, you know, if the UFC ever goes out of business, he could really school some people down at the airport. Yeah, that would be a good, maybe a good job opening for him, a good opportunity. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern you would like to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You can go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Monday to Friday when we're not recording the podcast, or in this case, Wednesday to Friday. Yeah, uh, quick, so quick turnaround be because quick one turnaround. of us kind of fucked us. Uh, could have been either of us. We don't. We're but not it, sure who. It but was. it was it was one of us. It was definitely one person. Hopefully, we'll get to the bottom of that. As for right now, though, we're going to get started with round number one. Ben, obviously, Rafael Dos Anjos does the damn thing at UFC 185 against Anthony Pettis, taking the UFC lightweight title by unanimous decision at the end of a fairly one-sided beatdown. Uh, and a picture-perfect performance, frankly, from Dos Anjos. And if you haven't read the uh, Jack Slack breakdown of it yeah. on Fightland, you should because it's it's good, like all the stuff that Jack Slack does, and, and extremely illuminating about this performance. I guess to open up... Just broadly speaking, I wanted to ask you, did we underestimate Rafael Dos Anjos coming into this fight, or did we overlook some of the like pre-existing uh, faults, I guess you could say, in Anthony Pettis' uh, style after he'd been on this run of, of five wins in a row uh, dating back to October of 2011? I think more the first one. I mean, I'm sure we, you know, we like we can do in sometimes in MMA, we get a little carried away when a guy gets a few flashy wins, uh, and then suddenly it's the so and so era. We'll we'll do that from time to time, and I'm sure we did it a little bit here with Anthony Pettis, but I really think we did uh, underestimate Dos Anjos, and especially uh, maybe underestimating him. Uh, like we just thought that there was more of a limit to his kind of pressure fighting style than there was. We we figured that he was kind of a grinder that'll come out there and, and get after you and wear you down a little bit, but that he didn't have that ability to go out there and, and really hurt you and really take it to you. And I think that that fight, one of the things we saw is right away he comes forward, lands that left hand on Anthony Pettis's right eye, and I like in the opening moments of the fight, and that changes the fight. Like, it's not that that one punch wins it for him, but, you know, he lands that left hand on the eye a couple times, especially in that first round. And then you hear Anthony Pettis talking about how he can't see out of that eye and said later that he couldn't see out of the eye for the rest of the fight. Uh, that seemed to have a real impact on it. And just that, 
normally what Anthony Pettis likes to do is get a guy to come after him, get that kicking game going, and, and keep that guy at a distance right where he wants him, uh, and then he'll just pick you apart. And Dos Anjos had, had no problem uh, not only walking through the kicks when he needed to, coming back with kicks of his own, um, but closing that distance down and getting the takedown when he wanted it. And, and all that, you combine all those things, and Anthony Pettis just couldn't get his back off the fence and get his offense going. Yeah, we talked during the, the intro, and we'll probably talk in round two also about dictating where the fight is contested, but that seemed like a real key to me for what Dos Anjos did in this fight. Uh, not necessarily being able to take Anthony Pettis down whenever he needed to do it, although he did do that, and that was important. But like one of the most impressive things that I frankly didn't notice while I was watching the fight, but then was in the, the Jack Slack uh, recap and, and like analysis of the fight was you know pressuring anthony pettis against the fence and not necessarily even pushing him up against the fence but just getting him to back up enough so that it sort of collapsed the wide stance that he likes to use to throw those kicks that we always talk about that we hear so much uh hype over that that you know he he does a good job of of not telegraphing and then you know they're very accurate and he kicks you very hard uh and dos anjos did a good job just making him uncomfortable i thought putting him in positions where he was so close to the cage that he didn't really have that stance to throw those kicks uh he couldn't stop that left hand and he just didn't really know how to overcome that or at least he he didn't he couldn't put it together to overcome that in five rounds in in the time that he had and that's one of the things that that kind of got me thinking about that you know dictating where the fight happens because uh Pettis has been so good and has won so many of his fights in the first round like three or four in a row leading up to that Gilbert Melendez fight which he ended up stopping with a uh, a choke in the second round but it's like i think maybe we we kind of forgot that he's susceptible to that that he's he could be susceptible to being bullied around the cage a little bit by dos anjos and clearly Rafael dos anjos knew that and and did a really good job of of putting that game plan together well i think what we've seen in the past and and that i think maybe we expected to see more here was that uh, coming after anthony Pettis and having to come after him over and over again for five rounds usually provides a lot of opportunities for you to get hurt that way. And that's what he did uh, kind of to Gilbert Melendez. And that's what he, we've seen him do to other people. And it just seemed like he couldn't really get anything going that Dos Anjos was even worried about. You know, even when he would launch some good kicks, uh, land some good counter punches, uh, Dos Anjos just kind of shrugged it off. And you're right that he really was able to, to pin him up against that fence, but uh, without having to commit so much to doing that that he couldn't get his offense going you know he just kind of backed him up to that fence and Pettis couldn't get off of it and and then he was able to to kind of pick his shots from there and that's something if you go and you watch as I did after this fight I went uh, on the fight pass and watched uh, Dos Anjos's loss to uh, Nurmagomedov uh, last April and you see a big difference there. I mean, he he can't do that to to Nurmagomedov, and it makes you wonder if he'll be able to do any better the second time around. Because, uh, like you said, he he does seem like he looks better, looks more confident as a fighter, but he was never able to really pressure forward and get Nurmagomedov moving backwards for any length of time. Uh, and instead, it was he responding to the pressure and, and and fending off the takedowns. And you wonder, you know, what makes you think that that one's going to work out any differently? Which, like, I mean, you mentioned it in the intro that it did feel like. 
by the time we're in like round four yeah. of Dos Anjos Pettis, we're already, Joe Rogan and everybody, we're already talking about like, okay, but can he beat Nurmi? Right. Yeah. The fight wasn't even over yet. We'd still want one whole round to go. And Nurma Gomedov still has to fight Donald Cerrone at, at what, UFC 187 or 189, something like that. So we don't even know that he's going to end up being the number one contender, although he'll certainly be the favorite in that fight. No one has really been able to, to stop his grappling in the UFC. The only thing that's been able to, slow him down even a little bit has been his own injury status. Uh, and he does look like a tough matchup for Rafael Dos Anjos and <laughs> maybe an even tougher matchup for Anthony Pettis if Pettis were to get it back together to become the number one contender. I wanted to talk a little bit about Anthony Pettis's future because a week ago, it seemed like he was the odds-on favorite to maybe become the biggest star of this sort of new crop of young champions that the UFC has uh, because of his fighting style, because he's got a guy for for everything. He looks good getting off the bus. He wears the Ric Flair suits. Uh, he seemed like he was the champion, like he was the guy you wanted. Well, now he's not the champion, and the lion's share of UFC champions who lose their titles don't ever get them back. Although the all-time greats, George St. Pierre, Matt Hughes, Randy Couture, Cain Velasquez, eh, those guys have, have lost their titles and then come back to reclaim them at some point. But this puts Anthony Pettis' career in kind of a, a new territory for us uh, where maybe he's now facing the biggest challenge of what will be his athletic life, and that, that could be like trying to come back to be the leader of the pack again, or whether or not he's going to kind of sink into the scenery. Like, you know, some of these other UFC champions that we thought might be the, the next big thing, but then, you know, ended up having very short title reigns. And, and that was about it from them. Yeah. I don't, you know, it makes me wonder like what would be better for Anthony Pettis's title prospects? Uh, Dos Anjos keeping the belt and him getting another crack at him and kind of being like, okay, let me go back to the, the drawing board here and fix what, whatever was happening there. Maybe if I don't get just blasted right on the eye or at the beginning, it's a different fight. Maybe if I just have a different approach, it's a different fight. Um, I mean, I guess I like his chances better to to do that than I like his chances to beat Nurmagomedov. Right. Well, we always thought Nurmagomedov was going to be a tough draw for Anthony Pettis, and that was before we saw the Nurmagomedov game plan uh, played out so uh, effectively by Rafael Dos Anjos. Now it seems like not only is Anthony Pettis going to have a lot of rebuilding to do to even get himself back to the stature that we thought that he had a week ago, but like to, to compete with these these guys who are just going to come out and get in his face and, and, and wrestle him for 25 minutes. Like that's, that's kind of a tall order to put those skills together. Those are the kind of things that usually only come to guys who have been doing it for their entire lives. So I wonder now for Anthony Pettis, like, is it going to be better? Like, what does he do now? Where does he go? Does he, he's already fought most of the guys in the lightweight top five. And it seems like matching him up with Michael Johnson or Edson Barboza or Miles Jury or Eddie Alvarez would be, you know, kind of a letdown. Like, not necessarily – like, Eddie Alvarez seems like kind of a sweet fight to me. But, like, uh, you know, not the, the future that we all had planned for pretty Tony Pettis. So, like, what does he do? Does he wait around to try to – you know, still make some kind of super fight happen, maybe with the loser of Conor McGregor, Jose Aldo, in July? Or does he just kind of like shuffle back into the pack and take on one of these guys, you know, from the 6 to 12 range in the lightweight rankings that aren't going to be as big of a, a fight or as big of a draw? I'll tell you, if you're going to shuffle him back into the pack at lightweight, you know you could do a whole hell of a lot worse than Anthony Pettis versus Nathan Diaz. Oh. Diaz, sorry. Yeah, Nathan Diaz. Yeah, that's... 
that's a pretty good idea. They had that nightclub blow up a little while ago. Uh, you know, they Nate Diaz is going to be out there talking shit on Twitter. Uh, been one of the many people to to kick Anthony Pettis while he's down. I mean, it would just be one of those things where if you don't know exactly what to do with the guy rankings wise, if you can put him in what seems like a fun, exciting fight with a personal element to it, that might work. I want to know from you. Josh Gross kind of mentioned this to me on Twitter earlier this week, and I and I've been thinking about it ever since. I know we don't like to get too bogged down in rankings because they are stupid, but right now, even though Rafael dos Anjos has the UFC lightweight belt and nobody uh, can disagree with whether he deserves to hold it or not, do you regard him as the number one lightweight in the world, or do you regard Nurmagomedov as the number one lightweight in the world? See, that's... Or do you want to go Will Brooks or something and just that, be crazy? That's one of those questions that makes you realize why rankings are stupid and how it's kind of a failed exercise to try to, like, break down this sport with a tool as blunt as an ordered list. You know what I mean? Because it's like, how do you even do that? You're in saying a, you want a scalpel instead of a hatchet? That's right. And in a way, it makes the UFC rankings the version where you have the champion and then you have the top... 15 rankings like seem kind of applicable because at least that solves that problem. You just take the champion off the board. Uh, well, it solves the problem in a kind of bullshit way. And that is like, that's in their stated rules that whoever has the belt is automatically like right. out of the rankings picture. Yeah. Which just seems kind of sly in retrospect. Like you wouldn't think <laughs> yes. about it that way, but it definitely solves the problem of everyone thinking you have a bullshit champion. Uh, I mean, I guess I would have Rafael or Rafael dos Anjos number one. Because it's been so long since Nurmagomedov fought. He's been injured. He's, he's, I mean, ask me again after he fights Donald Cerrone and we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Uh, it's interesting to me to think how far Anthony Pettis should properly drop if he should be like three or four, but I think behind both those guys. But, uh, you know, they still have him at number one on the official UFC rankings. Uh, but so now the question, I guess, with, with Rafael dos Anjos to, to confront briefly is like, we're still, I guess, not really buying him as the champion or as the best fighter in the division, as I think your question just illustrated. But, like, does he turn out to just be this transitional champion who's just going to turn around and drop the strap to Nurmi in, in September? Well, I think there's still so many moving parts that you can't tell what the hell is going to happen. I think if it were just, like, if it were, like, a video game where, like, okay, you beat that guy and now then, you know, you you have to fight this guy. I think that he does not beat Nurmi uh, in a rematch. Uh, but then, you know, he's – Dos Anjos has got an injured knee that he's going to have to deal with. We heard that he, he injured it a couple weeks before uh, the Pettis fight. He's going to deal with that. Nurmi's going to fight Donald Cerrone. Who knows what the hell could happen there? I mean, I think that one is is a good matchup, uh, good good thinking on the UFC's part because what's your worst case scenario? That Donald Cerrone wins, and now you've got him in a title fight. Like, well, shit, man, we're gonna have a lot of fun with that. Don't act like we're not. Uh, so, but then again, it's like who who's to say that uh, Nurmi doesn't win that fight and get hurt and be out for a long time again? I mean, I think that if you could take injuries out of the equation, I would say yes. Nurmi beats Cerrone, then he beats Dos Anjos, and Dos Anjos ends up being just like a plank from the Pettis era to the Nurmi era. Uh, but who the hell knows in this sport? I guess that that's the spoils of the lightweight division, though. Like, you can almost do no wrong there. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, and then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, did you see the pictures this week of Chris Weidman, Frank Mir, and Fabricio Verdum broing down with Chechen president Ramzan Kadriovs? Nailed, Nailed it. it. Yep. Uh, at some MMA event over there, uh, 
I assume you did see them because they I were did. they were awesome. First of all, presidents of countries who are also really really into MMA. That's pretty weird. I'm gonna say, uh, but I guess I'll skip over any sort of like far reaching political implications because frankly I'm not up on what's going on in Chechnya right now. Oh no, no, I that surprises dropped me. Drop the ball on that, I guess. But two, Hardy, are you fucking kidding me? One for Chris Weidman's dance moves because I don't understand how a dude can be as talented at MMA as Weidman is, uh, and yet the physical enterprise of dancing seems a little bit beyond him. But you know the kind of dancing he's used to, man. Sure, kind of half unbuttoned, just kind of doing it, doing the head bob. Well, that would be around. better than what he what he does in the traditional Chechen dance Instagram video that that we've seen. Second, are you fucking kidding me? This week, the return of Frank Mir face. If you can find the photo of Frank Mir and Verdum and the Chechen president that, that looks like Mir and Verdum are wearing traditional Chechen garb. The president of Chechnya is wearing like athletic pants or something. Uh, it's worth it just to see Frank Mir's face because are you fucking kidding me? Frank Mir, I assume they're paying you good money to be there, man, <laughs> so that your wife doesn't make you get a real job. Can you at least make it look like you want to be in the picture? <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? You're fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, uh, you know, as much as I'd like to give an are you fucking kidding me to your claim that – uh, world leaders being into MMA is weird. I mean, fine. I guess it's cool that like Obama can be into like college basketball, like this exploitative thing where we take, uh, people who are playing in this multi-million dollar tournament. And we don't give them anything. Uh, we don't, we don't pay them. That's, that's cool for him to do. Uh, but being into professional prize fighting, that, that's weird. Fine. Whatever. Whatever. Don't, don't look at me. Don't start with me. Don't, don't this. you look. I'm just saying, I just think it's weird how many people are into watching other people's kids play collegiate sports. Anyway, my are you fucking kidding me does have to go out to you, but I'm going to give you, Chad Dundas, the rare positive are you fucking kidding me. Cha-ching. Ten days ago on this very podcast where you mentioned that maybe, just maybe, the UFC was courting disaster by naming one of the events kind of after the the nickname of one of the main event fighters. Uh, welcome to the show for UFC 185, a play on Anthony Pettis' Showtime nickname. And you brought it back to UFC 46 Supernatural, a play on Randy Couture's The Natural nickname. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, that one got a little weird. He got his eyeball sliced open by Vitor Belfort's glove, lost his title. That was also the last time that two titles changed hands on a UFC pay-per-view, two actual titles, not right. the interim Two undisputed stuff. titles. The last time that happened. Are you fucking kidding me? Chad Dundas called this shit in more ways than even he could realize? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? My greatness knows no bounds. Now, I feel like whenever the UFC is like, oh, we have a great idea for the tagline that we're going to put on the poster of this thing. There should be a bat phone in Dana White's office that he picks up and says, hey, Chad, can you think of anything wrong with this? Can you can you get, can you give me one good reason? Chances are I would be able to not to do this. Talk me down, Chad. That was a good a good pick by me. A good take. I think I earned those 10 days off. From the podcast. Now you're you're already burning through the goodwill that you established here. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Chad, I think that if you wanted to have some fun with the highlights from UFC 185, you could do a lot worse than to go back, turn the sound off during Joanna Champion, uh, her win over Carla Esparza, and just every time that one-two lands, especially every time that, that I'm going to say, stinging right hand uh, from Joanna Janjajic lands, to just go ahead and make your own sound effects to go with it. Might I suggest Piow and Boom and Pow and Biff, like the old school Batman episodes. Maybe some of the sound effects from the wacky soundboard of the JT and the Bear morning show. Boy, 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 boy. The sound of a foghorn. I don't know if the foghorn would actually work that well. <laughs> uh, but god damn. You know, that was one of those fights where I, I thought, okay, it looks like Junjaychik is a, is a good kickboxer. She's obviously a very experienced kickboxer, but does she have the kind of takedown defense? It seems like Carlos Barza is just going to go in there, plant her on her back, wear her out, and eventually probably get her in a submission or just pound her face in for five rounds. And then you you see the fight unfold, and it seemed like both uh, Junjaychik's takedown defense being a lot better than at least I thought it was, and also Carla Esparza's strategy for getting the fight to the mat being a whole hell of a lot worse. But then at a certain point, you see the look in Carlos Barza's eyes when you when you realize she's already tired. She realizes she can't really get her to the mat, and her chances of getting a successful takedown are only getting worse the more tired she gets and the more she's forcing these takedowns and kind of gassing herself out. And every moment she has to stand there across from this crazy Polish chick is a nightmare because she is getting lit up. And that's when you knew it was just a matter of time. Yeah, and that, I guess, kind of underscores the fledgling nature of the strawweight class, right, is that you have the inaugural champion who wins the tournament from the Ultimate Fighter Fighter Season 20. She comes into the the UFC proper, and then it turns out that she seems just completely one-dimensional, at least as compared to not just her competition, but her very first competition as champion. Uh, as an aside, I should note that longtime listener of the podcast, Handsome Pat Fannin, wrote a pretty awesome uh, linguistic breakdown of Joanna Yenjechik's name huh. on a site called uh, CagePassionMedia.com, which I've never heard of before. Uh, are, but are they are they whores? Cage Passion Media or whores? I would is assume whores, is a whore? two dollar whores, if anything. Okay, I'm not sure that there's a lot of money flying around over there. Uh, but so Pat Fannin and then a, a Polish speaker who also has some linguistic uh, training got into the comments and they figured it out. It went back and forth with a lot of phonetic analysis, which I don't know would make for great podcasting. But the end result is that the simplified pronunciation for English speakers would in fact be Joanna Yendjechik. Yendjechik. Yendjechik, which doesn't seem that hard now that we know. Yeah, Joanna Champion is still pretty awesome, though. I'm not doing that. What, what is your problem? What you, you hate fun. That's your problem. Violates a lot of the stipulations, including... Don't give yourself your own nickname. Well, as we we have discussed in, in the past, unless like, it's awesome, because I think that there is there's a footnote on that one, and you follow it down, and it says unless it's awesome, and then there's another footnote that says no, the Red King is not awesome. <laughs> I just think that it's you know it makes us look like quitters if we're just going to quit on Yin Jaychik saying that. Uh, like for, we'll just ballpark it like we do every other name in in mixed martial arts, including but not limited to Fedor Emelianenko, which is not how you say that in the <laughs> Russian tongue. We just decided to go with Fedor because that works and it's fun. So I'm just gonna go Yenjechik. 
All right. And everybody else is going to get on board. And you know why? Because Joanna Janjacek is kind of awesome. Like, yes. seems like she has the opportunity to be a good strawweight champion for the UFC. Uh, she pretty much brings it in the interview segments and then does that weird thing at the weigh-ins where, first of all, she gave Carla Sparzo a cookie, which I took to be a nice gesture, but I guess maybe it wasn't. Uh, and then she does that thing where she kind of squats down and gets in your face. Yeah. From underneath you. Like a, like a gargoyle, kind of. Yes, it's, there's, it's gargoylean. Yeah, yeah. Right? There are some, there are, I'm not saying that, that she looks like a gargoyle when she does that, but she is a little gargoyle-ish at that moment. Uh, and it's scary. It's really kind of scary. But I also, I agree with you that, like, if, it, like, we said before that it felt like the women's uh, strawweight division was kind of in this weird wait-and-see period where we weren't totally sure. It seemed like the UFC was not ready to get behind Carlos Barza. Uh, no nope. win again, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, nobody really was sure exactly, like, where are we going with all this? Are we waiting for somebody like Paige Van Zant to just get enough experience and to come after this? Uh, or are we waiting for somebody else? We didn't really know. And then I feel like, Man, it, we could do a whole hell of a lot worse than Joanna Jinjaychik because let's let's ride that train and see how far it goes because she is a lot of fun as far as just like interviews and then her fighting style. I mean, I'm, a fighter in that division right now who is that good of a a striker and experienced kickboxer and has pretty good takedown defense could go a really long way. Yeah, and frankly, I was gonna suggest this for Carla Esparza, but since she didn't win, I'll just go ahead and suggest it to Joanna Yenjechik. I think the move to do right now would be call out Paige Van Zandt, don't you think? Because like she is appears to be being groomed to be like the big star of the division and yet uh she's still a little green in the UFC. I'm not sure she has the, all of that much MMA experience on the whole. I think the thing to do would be to get her get in her face now. Like if you are GNJ check and you're the champion basically do a bunch of interviews where you're like it seems like they want her to be the champion so let's just fight right now that would let's be kind of a, a sweet move you know what would make that sweet move even sweeter is if you're like okay so she's the only one in this division who's got a Reebok sponsorship how about this we'll fight and if you win you get to have the UFC women's strawweight title and if I win I get your Reebok deal wow okay high stakes yeah now you're not kidding around here no I you I'm saying Joanna Champion, you can have that one. You don't even have to credit me. You can just go ahead and steal that one. We'll never mention it again. I think it would be a lot of fun. And I think, like you like you said, it probably would be maybe a little bit easier pickings than waiting around and, and having to fight somebody like Tisha Torres or one of those other uh, tough fighters out of the, the women's strawweight yeah. division who stylistically could give you some trouble. It would be to your advantage because then it would also put the other side – it would like put your opponents in the debate on the defensive because if you challenge Paige Van Zandt to a fight right now, then you would have to wait and see how of the uh, the the PR machine responded. Because there's no good way to respond to that, right? No. You have to be like, nah, she's a really big deal, but like, she's not ready. She's yet. not ready to fight for the title yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're you're right. You know, and I think that uh, one of the things that maybe like people were saying, like when they didn't want to admit that the reason Paige Van Zandt has a Reebok deal is because that she's blonde and pretty. Uh, is because they were saying, well, Carlos Barza doesn't have a ton of personality. All right. Joanna Champion has all the personality you could want, man. And, and she's working in a, uh, a second language here. And still, like, it really comes across there. She seems like a whole lot of fun. 
uh, and you kind of you get a you feel like you're getting a good sense for who she is, and and people are going to be wanting to do those interviews because they know it's going to make for good copy. So, all right, why not, man? Why not? And especially. Look how much we love it when, like, Conor McGregor gets the whole nation of Ireland behind him. Everybody loves it. Everybody embraces him as one of their own. It seems like it could easily work the same way for her in Poland, right? And yeah. we're already set to go to Krakow. Krakow. What Why the hell not? What is the next actual move for the women's strawweight title, though? Because clearly Van Zant's not ready. Uh, Alexa Grasso appears to have a good thing going but is not even in the UFC yet. Uh, and then we have this this crop of tough 20 tourney tournament participants who didn't who didn't make it so what what do we do here what, what's the what's the first move for Yanjechik and when is that Poland card can we get her on there is that too soon it might be a little too soon mm. especially but i mean she Jurassic. did say that she wanted to uh defend her title like six or seven times a year so who knows i i for one thing with the crop of tough 20 fighters Again, I would say that this one should be looked at differently than the usual tough cast because this was not something that they usually do where it's like, okay, let's just find a bunch of fuckers who will fight cheap uh, and one of them will be good and the rest of them are there to make that guy look good. Uh, this was a lot of established fighters in that and it's always that thing with tough, right, where it doesn't necessarily tell you who the best fighter out of that bunch was. It tells you who is going to do the best under those circumstances this time around. So I don't. I wouldn't write off uh, all those fighters. I think you still have a lot of good fighters that can come out of there. I think what they really need is more fights. But I also want to say, like you mentioned, Alexa Grasso and saying, "Hey, she's not even in the UFC," and kind of writing it off. I don't. The relationship between the UFC and Invicta seems such that, like, let's go ahead and just stop pretending that we couldn't just snatch you right out of Invicta and right straight into a UFC title fight. Like that's basically what we're doing over there now, right? Like the UFC can kind of. Take its pick and say, we want her, let us have her. And Invicta, they're not really in a position to be like, hey, no, we, we think we're going to hold on to her for a little while. They don't want to do that. So why not just say like, hey, give us the best person you got and we'll use that to immediately pump up her UFC title shot. I think that could work. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, they have a strawweight champion over there, right? Is that, who is that? Do they have one, Invicta? Uh, well, they did have, uh, Carlos Sparza, did they not? As a right. they, they, so they bought that out. I guess I was thinking of uh, Jessica Aguilar, who was the World Series of Yeah, okay. Well, and that's another World one, Series right? of Fighting. Like, and and she had that uh, that win over Carlos Sparza a, a while. And th- she's one where that like, man, you wish that she could have been uh, right there on the ground floor of the UFC's women's strawweight division. And I don't know exactly what her contractual situation over there with World Series of Fighting is now, but she's somebody that. You want to have her over here, and it seems like it just – what else are you going to do? Like if you're if you're fighting women's strawweights like in World Series of Fighting right now, how much work is there for you? Yeah. I was uh, – I wouldn't even be opposed to the idea of, of Invicta champions or Invicta fighters bringing their belts over, you know, fighting in the UFC. Like obviously I don't think the UFC would ever do that, but we did – we got, either got an email or a tweet the last week or so, someone saying that – uh if the UFC wants Chris Cyborg, they should just have her come over and defend the uh, Invicta Featherweight Women's Championship in the Octagon, which frankly I thought was kind of a cool idea because then you'd get you get sort of like that multi-company flair, you know, be like WCW. See, I knew that's where you were going with this. You just want somebody to drop the belt in the trash, around. don't you? It's, we're trending that way, and I wouldn't argue with it. 
Anyway, that's probably going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back for round number three. Ben, perhaps the biggest surprise about UFC Fight Night 62 is that it's going to be on your television, hey. emanating from Genasio Domara Canzanino. The Little Zinni. That's, that's, what, that's what I call it. Pretty sure I nailed that. Uh, featuring a main event fight of Damian Maya Baptista against Ryan LaFlair. Uh, quick, Ben, tell me everything you know about Ryan LaFleur. Um, he's won like four fights in a row, and none of them have been all that interesting. He's actually 11-0. and 0. He's won four fights I mean, in, in the a UFC. row in the UFC. Yeah, how many of the dudes that he beat outside the UFC have Wikipedia pages, Chad? Uh, that would be zero. Uh-huh. The people that he has beat in the UFC are Ben Alloway, Santiago Ponzinibbio, Court McGee and John Howard, all four by decision. He is a 31-year-old native of Lindhurst, New York. Uh, Lindhurst, stand up. And I'm sure is, they say that there. Uh, according to Wikipedia, a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So, hey, so am I. There, hey! <laughs> there you have it. Can I main event a, a UFC show from, uh, from the Little Zinni? If you sign that contract to fight Phil Brooks, man... You do it. No, I'm not going to say that. Big ups to you. I'm not going to do that. Uh, is the Eric Silva, Josh Koscheck co-main event more interesting here than Damian Maya, Ryan LaFleur? Uh, interesting in a, in, a, in a way because we all are kind of wondering, what are you doing, Josh Koscheck? What's on your head? What's on your brain right now? Are you just trying to get over and done with this MMA stuff? Or are you just trying to get over and done with this UFC stuff so you can go sign with Bellator? What's up? Uh, so it is a little interesting as far as – uh, the particulars outside the cage. Your uh, your Koscheck conspiracy ha- is growing now because the last time we talked about it, you just mentioned that maybe the thing that had crossed your mind was whether or not Josh Koscheck just wanted to get done with his contract as quickly as possible. Now this week, I know you add that he's going to go sign with Bellator. I don't know. So I don't know if he's going to do that. Thing, there's layers to this shit, man. This it's <laughs> unfolding like a map in front of me. Come on, it's weird, right? It's weird that like uh, not too long ago he was talking like he might just want to retire. Uh, and he took like that bad knockout loss against Tyron Woodley, and it was seeming like I mean, you look around at all the other tough one alums, it seems like retirement might be the thing to do right about now. And then you know he takes that fight with Jake Ellenberger, gets choked out, doesn't look super good in it, and then is going to jump up and less than a month later go down to Brazil to fight Eric Silva. I mean that that seems like a guy who who has some some kind of plan that does not involve a whole lot of patience. Yeah, to me, that just seems like like fighter brain getting the best of you. Like, oh, man, I can't go out that way. And, like, I don't want to sit around with this bad taste of getting choked out by Jake Ellenberger, which, let's face it, is a tough fight for Josh Koscheck to take yeah. to come back in. He thinks, you know, he has, has this opportunity to jump in and fight Eric Silva, chance for him to get the bad taste out of his mouth uh, when Ben Saunders gets injured, uh, and he jumps at it and, like, but I like your tin tinfoil hat style for you, this one. Though. You tell me, you think that you see Josh Koscheck in the UFC again after this? 
I wouldn't be surprised if this is the last go round. I would be surprised if he turned up in Bellator. You you would not be surprised. You well, I'm saying, uh, you know, six months off, and uh, I'll look at maybe the the offer that Bellator would give you to come over there and lend a little name value to one of those Spike TV cards. Might change a guy's mind. Opportunity to to give props to dethrone base camp over in Fresno on, you, your, on your pants. There you go. Instead of just do what you want over there. The Reebok swirl. Not the man holding you down. I. You know what though? If we're going to talk about what's interesting on this card, there there's that fight that the Koscheck and Silva, uh, Amanda Nunes and Shayna Baszler is yeah. one that I'm going to be interested in because you know I'm pretty much always going to watch Shayna Baszler come out there like she's uh, getting ready to play a heavy metal show and then go ahead and get in a fist fight instead. That's awesome. I'm into it. Uh, and then if Demon Demian Maya is involved, sure I'll watch it. I, I guess like Ryan LaFair seems like a good fighter, good athlete. Uh, a guy who could probably go in there and disappoint a whole bunch of Brazilians by winning a decision over Demian Maia. But I don't know, man. Maybe it's just the uh, the jujitsu mark in me. If Demian Maia is gonna gonna fight, then I I am gonna probably get more interested in that than I should. Well, Especially all, at this point, you've also got Gilbert Burns on this card. Get the fuck out! Nine and zero. He's nine and zero lightweight. Come on, man. Gilbert Burns. You're really excited, huh? I can hear it in your He's voice. Two and zero in the UFC. There Decorated jujitsu guy. I'm trying to play to your. Uh-huh. I'm trying to get you excited for this card. No. He wins that. He might fight your guy, Benil Darius. He is going to win that. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, Damian Maya had lost two in a row. Jake Shields, Rory McDonald, the Red King. And then... Uh, God, I hate you so much. <laughs> You're doing this got, just to hurt me. That's right. Got back off the schneid against Alexander Yako, Yakovlev. Nailed it. At, uh, you said it with such confidence, which is the, what I like. The, uh, can't you just hear me saying that over the loudspeaker <laughs> in the Minneapolis airport? Report to gate Alexander B-10 immediately. Yakolov, please meet your party at gate F10 to retrieve your forgotten items. <laughs> Yeah, and see, you're you're already on it. You're not going to go ahead and specify the item like some rookie. No, no you, you say... got to come back and describe it to me. Otherwise, I'm taking it home. That's how it works. <laughs> uh, Damian Maya, let's see here. How old is Damian Maya at this point? He is 37 years old. Damn it. And uh, another guy like maybe Josh Koscheck, you'd think is getting uh, getting on towards the end of it. Uh, does he gain anything from beating Ryan LaFlair in the main event of a of a show at, at the gym, Gymnasio Manzanibio or whatever in, in Brazil? Well, you don't want to lose. It's on your television. You There's that. It is on your television. You don't want to lose in front of the crowd in Brazil. I think, I, you know, I, I'm still not sure exactly what to make of Demian Maia at this stage in his career. Because for one thing, uh, and this again might be me being a jiu-jitsu mark, I felt like his fight with Jake Shields was underappreciated. I really enjoyed the hell out of that fight. I thought it was a really good fight. Uh, the decision kind of could have gone either way. Um, then the one with Rory McDonald where it looked like in, in the early going, it looked like, man, Demon Maya is going to come out here and school Roy McDonald. And then it seemed like he just got exhausted uh, and Roy McDonald couldn't finish him. So I, what do you think? Like, is, is Demian Maya at the stage where like he'd be better off uh, retiring and making jujitsu DVDs? Uh, or which, Hey, I mean, that's like, that's not a bad case scenario. Uh, a lot of dudes wish that they had that kind of like secondary outlet. Um, but, or is he like, cause it seems like nobody's even thinking about it anymore. Like there was that moment where, and he went down to welterweight where people were like, holy shit, look at him, like making blood spurt out of Rick story's face or, right. or you yeah. know, like go went three and O down there yeah. and beat, beat some players too, and it including, to s- but not limited to John Fitch. 
And Dong Young Kim. Yeah, well, and the Dong Young Kim thing was like a rib injury or something, but he still, he was looking good in that one. But, like, it seemed like there were there was about 15 minutes where we were all really excited about Demon Maya as, as a welterweight, just like there was about 15 minutes when he was submitting dudes like Nate Quarry and stuff where we were really excited about him as the, like, middleweight jujitsu purist that we haven't seen since, like, 1996. And now it seems like people are going, oh, yeah, Demon Maya. Hadn't thought about him in a while. Well, it it doesn't help when you hide the guy on in Brazil on Fox Sports 1 against Ryan LaFlair. Like, that's not necessarily going to get the guy a lot of headlines. But, I mean, I think you're right. I think that, that Damian Maia, he's 4-2 uh, and two in his last six, which is obviously how they're going to uh, bill him on the UFC broadcast. One, four of his last six fights or whatever. Uh, but it's like an interesting time at welterweight right now, man. If you, if he comes out there and looks impressive against Ryan LaFlair, there are plenty of dudes that he could fight. Jake Ellenberger, like chief among them, I would think. Like at this point in, in the welterweight division, you've got like kind of an interesting title picture with Rory McDonald and Robbie Lawler and, and now Johnny Hendricks, you would think, knocking on the door again, even if UFC Brass wasn't necessarily that impressed with his performance. But like you've also got a plethora of somewhat, you know, second tier guys like Matt Brown, for example, that like you can kind of mix and match any way you want and uh come out with a decent result. And Damian Maya, if he if he beats Ryan LaFlair, I think could certainly be a guy who's who's in that tier of fighters still. Yeah, well, then look at the flip side for Ryan LaFlair. You go out there and let's say you decision Damian Maya, just like you've decisioned everybody else uh, that you fought in the UFC, and you do it, like you said, kind of hidden away on this card that coming right on the heels of uh, a UFC pay-per-view that the UFC spent a lot of time promoting. The UFC has not put a whole lot of muscle behind uh, getting the word out about this one. Uh, doesn't have a whole lot of firepower on this card. Are you just, you know, kind of screaming into the void here, even if you do have a good performance as Ryan LaFleur? Well, I think if if you come out and blow Damian Maya's doors off, like that would be pretty impressive because he's a guy that, that not many people can do that to. And then, you know, if you're Ryan LaFleur, you then you're 12 and 0, you've won five fights in the UFC, especially if you can get a stoppage here, I think would be kind of a big deal. Yeah, that's what you uh, need. You need to make it into a highlight, something we can digest in 15 seconds. Yeah, and and like that's not going to get you on the short list of guys who are going to fight Robbie Lawler next, but like that's not a bad place to be either. Yeah. I guess so. I, I guess this makes me – I was reading something recently. I think it was on Bleach Report where Frankie Edgar was kind of talking about the difficulty in of standing out in the UFC right now. And he made a really good point, which is that uh, with the number of fights and the number of events and everything kind of stacked up back-to-back, it's really hard to stick in people's minds uh, to do anything that really stays with people. Um, because, hey, like even if you do go out there and blow somebody's doors off, uh, to, to quote Chad Dundas, and, and you have a great moment, chances are next weekend somebody else is going to have a great moment, man. People are just going to forget all about it. Plus, you know, the, if they just got excited for a big pay-per-view, maybe they take this one off. It gets really, really hard to stand out there. And like we've talked about with some of the other guys, like where – you have these up and comer guys and you want to be shining a spotlight on them. And at the same time, like how do you balance the need to to do that with also the need to kind of spread the talent around to fill out some of these cards? Yeah. That makes it sound like Frankie Edgar listens to this, to this show because 
We talk about that all the time. I think that's a perfectly valid point, man. It's totally the schedule has changed a lot of things, and and one of the things that it's changed is this sort of on to the next one mentality, where uh, you don't really have time to, especially if you're a journalist or you work for, a, you know, or even if you're a guy who reads a lot of MMA journalism, like you you don't you don't get that following week or two weeks where nothing's going on, where like basically your favorite writer would would bust through maybe all of the interesting fights on that card and tell you like here's this guy this is what he did and and here's the people to, to look out for now it's like ryan lafleur bleeds damian maya and then uh right away we're going to be getting ready for whatever the next ufc show is in in the uh mendez versus lamas in fairfax virginia you know uh although in fairness that one's not actually till the beginning of april so there will be some time after this particular fight where uh Oh, yeah, and we're really going to want to take a lot of time to digest this one. <laughs> well, it's either that or we're going to start looking ahead to Warren versus Gal- Galvao. Uh, we're going to we're gonna be, look, we're gonna be looking ahead a lot of stuff, I feel. All right. Uh, uh, last thing, and I, and I mentioned that I was kind of – we've talked before about how the rise of Bellator, especially their interest in signing a lot of the guys who have some name value from the UFC, has made it to where a lot of guys who have that name value in the UFC feel a lot safer from being cut. You know, and I was talking with uh, with Monty Cox. I talked to him to get his kind of perspective as a manager when I was working on my story about Mark Coleman, those medical woes. And he was saying, you know, he felt like, yeah, Bellator signed some of those guys who have a real name. But the thing that is really uh, making the UFC maybe rethink its its cut policy is how many shows they have to do. Uh, and he said that he had talked once to to. UFC matchmaker Joe Silva, who had made a remark along the lines of, you know, I've got to keep 50 or 60 extra guys on the roster because that's how many people get injured each year and pull out of fights. And for them, the UFC feels like the worst situation is where they have to go and sign somebody totally new just to fill a hole on a card if somebody gets hurt. Like they want to be able to fill that hole with somebody that they already have on the roster because they're constantly feeling that number crunch. Like we've got so many guys, we need to be getting rid of guys. If somebody gets hurt and falls out of a card, the worst situation for them is to be like, shit, we got to sign somebody new just to keep this thing together. That's another way that the number of shows is changing the, the business. All right, well, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, I don't know. You mentioned the whole uh, situation with Joanna Champion handing Carla Esparza a cookie at the weigh-ins. Yes. Which did seem like a nice gesture, kind of play on her cookie monster nickname. Uh, And you might not have seen this since I assume you probably went back and watched the pay-per-view via the magic of DVR or something since you were off gallivanting with the in-laws, having what I'm sure was a wonderful time in Florida. Uh, And... Joe Rogan seemed like he was really intent on making a big deal about that the cookie, this cookie that Joanna Jinjakechik had given Carlos Sparza was actually, Chad, expired. It was an expired cookie. Hmm. I'm, I'm just saying, how do you know when a cookie expires? It's a, it's like a, it's a baked good. Like it goes stale. Maybe it does. You know, it's not going to be as the best buy date tells you when it's at maybe it's peak moisture. But it's not like we're dealing with, like, a carton of milk here, man. Like, are you going to get sick from eating an expired cookie? Because I feel like my attitude, my approach toward baked goods has been kind of freewheeling. Yeah. (laughs) Wide open, I would say. Yeah. I'm just saying, either Joe Rogan was making too much of the expiration date on a cookie, which I don't even know who would put that expiration date there, or I've been taking a lot of risks in my, my dietary approach to baked goods. I'm just saying. 
handing the champion a stale cookie is some subtle shit, man. That's like a Sicilian message. <laughs> or like a fish wrapped in newspaper. Man. Or a complete accident. Yeah. <laughs> ben, this week I'm just saying, do these Irish dudes have it in their contracts that you're not allowed to take them down? Has the stand and bang clause become a standard part of the UFC fighter contract? If you happen to be a fighter from the fictional nation of Ireland, your boy Joe Duffy made his UFC debut last weekend against Jake Lindsay. And uh, it seemed like Jake Lindsay's game plan was maybe to walk around the cage and, and kick Joe Duffy in the leg until he got knocked out. Which is kind of what it looked like to me. Um, and then Joe Duffy gets gets in the either on the mic or in the media and says that, you know, as the man who's widely been billed as all caps, the last man to beat Conor McGregor trademark, he doesn't know if he's going to go down to featherweight. Come on, son. I'm just saying, we all know why you got a ticket to the party. Now you're going to act like you're not going to dance. Come on. I'm just saying. Irish listeners, you can direct your angry tweets to at Chad Dundas. That is at Chad Dundas. Thank you. No, they're still too mad at you for the whole fictional nation of Ireland thing. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to spend some undetermined amount of time talking about UFC Fight Night 62 and some other stuff as well. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. How about a candy bar? Does a candy bar have an expiration date? Yes. What's the worst that happens to you? Say you eat it. I don't think anything you personally really, really that bad would happen to you. I've eaten my fair share of expired candy bars in my time. Who even thinks to check the expiration? I think that you I'm realize... I do profen from a bit where I was just a throw out like four years ago. I'm fine. 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 I'm f